0: Thank you, Lord. Amen. Man, feel the Lord here strong, isn't it? He's so good. Man, wow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. So good to be with you guys again this evening. We uh, we had a good time today, Paul and I. We were able to go out and do a little revival adventure. And we ended up going to the Kimberly Church of God, and uh, we had a little prayer meeting with the Lord, and I ended up striking the ground. That was really awesome. But uh, we ended up going to the library, right? What was it called? Warrior Warrior Library. Saw that the lady, I guess, that they honored for, her last name was Thornton, which my last name is Thornton. I thought, oh, man, this is cool. But um, it was really, really awesome to find some articles in the library about Pinson and Rogers and, again, the continuous history that God was moving in this area, man. It was powerful, powerful. But um, I really enjoyed it. And um, today I was talking with Amber. We were just kind of praying through. And, and um, I, you know, again, I just want to reiterate that I really felt to come here this weekend about this message about redigging the wells. And, of course, like we shared last night, striking the ground was so important that, that we came to strike the ground. And so tonight I just kind of want to share a little bit more in depth in that and um, I just kind of want to walk us through uh, more of a practical way about redigging wells, about reopening wells, what that's all about. And I want to share with you tonight through, through some stories and some photographs of actually what happened with us in a particular city, Wilmington, North Carolina. And over a seven-year period, we actually saw this well burst open. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's one thing to teach it. But I think it's better if I could just show you, right? if I could just show you what this looks like. But in doing so, I really felt that, again, Paul, and especially Lee, like that word last night, brother, you're not done, man. God is recharging you and getting you ready. You're carrying something big in this next season. And um, and I felt like even this message tonight was specifically for leaders, too, in this house and, that, um, and where God is taking things and just pulling some tangibles and, and some things that that, that we tapped into, that we discovered in seeing relationships form, cities coming on fire for Jesus, God healing the racial divide, God healing the cultural divide in this city. It, it was quite remarkable what the Lord did. So I, I want to kind of share with that. Um, before we do, I want to turn with me real quick to Genesis chapter 26. And um, I just want to make this really easy to understand about redigging wells. Come on, Genesis chapter 26, story about Isaac, right? Isaac was the son of Abraham, and this story, this whole chapter, um, it shows us that there were wells that Abraham had dug, and you know, back in that time, wells were very important because water was everything. It was life, right? Like you couldn't go down to Walmart and get a case of... uh, Aquafina or whatever kind of water. I mean, you know, it was like, it was hard to get water. So a well was important. It brought life to the community. It brought life to the, to the people, to the region. It, it gave source to the vegetables, the agricultural. It gave, it gave life to the people. So it was a very big, big deal. Well, what ended up happening was after Abraham died, there was a group of people called the Philistines, right? How many have ever heard the, the Philistines, right? They came and they filled up these wells with earth, the Bible says, and they, and they stopped them up. And then we see Isaac come along, Abraham's son, and he begins to redig these wells and open them up. And that's where I want to pick up. So in Genesis chapter 26, it says in verse, uh, verse 17, it says, So Isaac moved away from there, and he camped in the valley of Gerar. And he settled there in Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after, after Abraham and died. And then he gave them the same names that Abraham had given them. And just that passage, um, that's the NIV. And the King James, though, I like how it says it in King James, because it said in King James that all the wells that his father, the servants, had dug and the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them up with earth. And so Isaac digged again. That that's what the King James says. Isaac digged again. The NIV says, reopened. But King James says, digged again the wells of his father. And why is that important? Because I don't know what your imagery right now goes to when I say redigging wells. I don't know how you imagine how I used to picture that is if I pictured a desert and I pictured like, like an old cistern or some rock heaps piled up and then, oh, that would be like a well. Not necessarily true according to the biblical account. The Hebrew word for, for dig again or reopen is this word called chifar. Chifar. And guess what the Hebrew word trifar means? It literally means to search for or to look for. So as I started digging this out a little bit more, what I realized is that when Isaac is like trying to um, um, undo his father's well so he could have water for his flocks and stuff, it's not so much he's going through the desert and going, oh, there's, there's, my, there's my dad's well. Let me, go, let me go open it up. No. It was completely gone there was nothing there so he's actually searching for geographically where the well would have been so it, it's it's actually searching for it and then and then once you search for it then it starts another process and that's cleaning it out then once you clean it out then you can begin to break it open and so the best way that I can just really relay this to you is that redigging the wells comes in three simple steps that you can picture it out It's looking for the well first, it's cleaning the well out, number two, and then the number three is actually breaking that thing wide open. Now, I had a pastor friend of mine, true story, he was an actual well digger, like he actually dug wells for his living before he became a pastor, and we talked about this extensively. And you know what he used to tell me about digging wells? He said, the thing about when you dig for a big well of water, he goes, what'll happen is, when you penetrate the ground, you'll go to a certain depth, and you'll hit water, he said, but that water will be more murky and muddy, kind of contaminated like mud. He said, it's not, you know, it's, it's still, there's, it's not pure water. He said, but you got to go down deep to get that artesian, that well, that fresh water. And he goes, usually when you go at a certain depth, beyond that, that shallow depth, you, before you hit that artesian water, there's always the hardest rock pan surface. It's, it's so hard. And he said, what happened is that drill has to. Boom. And then it finally breaks. And then you tap into the artesian water that starts gushing up right out of the ground. And what a per- Isn't that a beautiful imagery of that's how redigging the wells is. It's not a fun job sometimes. It's not popular. And it takes a persistent digging, striking, digging, striking, digging. Striking, what does that really look like? That means like you hearing the voice of the Lord and obeying what he says. Pushing through jealousy in the church. Pushing through offense in the community. Pushing through relational dysfunction. Pushing through failure, discouragement, people leaving you, betrayal. Pushing through all those things that we come against, right? Pushing, pushing, and keep tapping, keep going. And then, boom, finally we hit that living water. Come on, isn't that good? Jesus said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living waters. So the thing is, these things, the Philistines stopped them up. They get contaminated, right? And so what Jesus wants to do, he wants to rip this well open. So it's really, really cool thing to to look at. So I want to, in keeping in that framework, I want to unload this thing now. So looking for the well, right? Cleaning it out and then ripping it open. So this is something that we started seeing in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I call this, what I'm, what I'm about to share, I call it the Wilmington Experiment, the Wilmington Experiment, all right, so this first layer that we're going to look at is, um, is, is, is locating the well, so what I mean by that practically is part of locating the well is discovering the history of the land, understanding the history, understanding the layout, the formation, things that happen in the city, the region that we live in, even here that, that you live in. We started a little bit of that last night. But I want to I start here with that. If you're ready, we can, we can move forward. I want to start real briefly about this Wilmington City or North Carolina. And, again, as I'm going through this town, I want you guys to just keep in mind um, this region, this area, because this applies and it's really connected. So let's go back a little bit. When we started uh, going to Wilmington, North Carolina, God moved us there, our family, in 2012 in Virginia. When I first got to Wilmington, North Carolina, we were connected with a church called Global River Church. Matter of fact, Paul will be ministering there with Abner Suarez like in a couple weeks. He's, that's, that was our home church. So we got there. Man, I didn't know anybody but the pastor that hired us and like one or two people in the church. And when we got there, we were like, all right, Lord, we're here. What do you want us to do? And God said, I want you to start opening this well in Wilmington. But to do that, you have to know some of the history because your city, this city, is still divided because of this history. So as I just started kind of like researching and and walking with the Lord, this is what I found out. Blew my mind. Never knew any of this. It starts out with the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. In the year 1898... There was a massive racial massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina that killed, some say, hundreds of black people. And literally 4,000 black people were pushed out of their homes in that one day. Now, why is this significant? Because this was literally not like just a mob. That's actually a real photograph of that day of the mob. But this was a highly orchestrated campaign from the North Carolina government from the North Carolina governor's office to the lieutenant governor to the state officials and senators and mayors across the entire Tar Heel State. They worked on this plan for three years. At that time, it was, it was completed through the Democratic Party because just a little bit of history to know this. In the year 1898, right, the Republican Party was in, in power in the government in federal and a lot of states. The Republican Party at that time was Abraham Lincoln's party. Right? After the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, they freed the slaves. So a lot of African Americans and poor white folks all throughout the South were part of the Republican Party. That was true in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and North Carolina, the whole South. So the Democratic Party at that time were the white, wealthy slave owners that lost all their slaves. Right? You know, when, when the slaves were, were lost to the, to the southern slave owners, they lost their whole economy. So now there is this Reconstruction. There's a lot of division in the nation. So what ends up happening and what brought this about was this. The federal government and Reconstruction literally made African Americans not just free, but they put them in powers of office and government offices like mayors, town council, sheriff, constables, judges, magistrates. I mean, can you think? you got to, like, go there and just think about that for a moment. Think about it. Think about If you were a white southern plantation owner and you were raised for the last 200 years to believe your slaves were property and not even human beings. And in one generation, in one generation, they go from not just being property to being human, but not just being human to literally ruling over your city. And now you're having to submit under their leadership. That's what caused this, this huge white aggression. And what happened is that began to boil, and they just got sick of it. So what they said is we're going to actually make a, a, a campaign that's going literally, to literally turn the tide, and we're going to take it in violence. And they had this violent massacre in Wilmington, and it was terrible. So what happened is on election day, to keep black people and poor white people from voting, they went out with 1,500 men. That was part of their picture, a uh, army of armed caravans. They had a machine gun, a Gatlin gun, a Gatlin gun at the head of the army, and they just mowed down every black person on the street, murdered them, blood flowing everywhere. And they took the 4,000 black people that owned property in the city, took their property through the magistrates, through the courts. They, they looped hold this whole thing, and they got them on a train and banished them out of the, out of the state. 4,000 in one day. So what, what happened? It, it, it literally, you could keep going. It hit, it hit national, national, this is the, that's the New York Herald, front page newspaper, the New York Herald. It went all across the nation. It was, it was huge. Keep going. And this is, that's again how they, how they concocted it. They swept the election. They had the riot. It's the only coup d'etat in America's history, Ever. Happened here. It's when, that's when one government overthrows another government. And in this case, it was the Democratic Party that overthrew the Republican Party. Isn't that unbelievable? So the last one is the exile. You could keep going. This was a real moment. And so some of the impacts there, they, uh, they, the, the leaders of this campaign got on the courthouse in Wilmington, and they wrote a document called the White Man's Declaration of Independence. And they begin to release that declaration on the steps of our courthouse. And what was laid out in the Declaration of Independence, in the white man's Declaration of Independence, was this. Segregation Jim Crow laws. Now the South will be separate but equal. And so what I'm telling you is this event was the beginning in how the Jim Crow laws for the entire South United States took their form in where they were birthed at. What happened was leaders from Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina heard about this. And they sent governors, mayors from this state, Mississippi, Louisiana, other states of the south, and they went and met with the leaders in Wilmington. They sat down with them in a council meeting and said, how did you pull this off in the city? So they told them the plan. So they took that plan, and then these states in the south, your state, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, Begin to do the same thing. And so they begin to enforce violence and intimidation and fear on poor blacks, on all these areas and whites, and they took the vote from them, and so within one year there was this massive Democratic Party swing in favor of the South, and they pushed all those folks out of office, and they gained control. Once they gained control of the Senate, then they could, be, they could begin to legislate laws that could put them back in a slavery kind of state. Is that unbelievable? And that's how we got to where we are. So That that was huge. Now, not only that, the national impact. The race riot in Wilmington ignited 19 other race riots in the country. Chicago, Atlanta, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, the whole nation was in an uproar. A lot of people don't know about this today. Like this was in Wilmington. This was omitted out of all the history books. This information has just come to the surface in the last 10 years. There are now publications and and things being done about it because they didn't put this in the history books because you just didn't talk about it. It was such, I mean, they had, guys, they had leaders on the Cape Fear River, which is the massive river that runs in the Wilmington, saying that tomorrow we will choke the, the, the Cape Fear River with carcasses of every black person in this city. I mean, it was that kind of volatile, vile hatred that was just being spewed out. So it ripped the city apart. It divided the city. And it was one of those things you just didn't talk about. All right? So keep going to the next one. So. How's that play into today? So that's a little background that I discovered about Wilmington. So I'm there and I'm thinking, wow, but it makes sense because as soon as I moved there and we moved there in 2012, we begin to notice that it was so hard to try to get the pastors together. It was so hard to try to get the leaders together in Wilmington, especially black pastors and white pastors, because most of our city was, you know, divided, like every pretty much town in the South today. We don't think of it as racism, but I mean it's cultural, right? It's like, well. Wait a minute, you know, I grew up, I didn't have any black people in my church. You know what, I grew up, I didn't have any white people in my church. And we've just kind of accepted it, that's just the way it is. But how did we get there? This is how we got there. And so what, what happened is, as we tried to begin to, to branch out of our local church to begin to just see a move of God as we moved more into the prophetic realm and revival. We knew that we couldn't do it alone. We needed the other churches and leaders to come together for the city. But this is the roadblock we ran into. So a lot of the people still remember all of that stuff in our city. So what there was, it was a massive dividing wall between white churches, black churches, between Latino churches. I mean, it was a huge divide. And the theological, like the Baptists, the, 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 Baptist, the Presbyterians, Methodists. I mean, they were so divided against one another. Does that sound familiar? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, my goodness. So we get there, and now I, I find this out. But God is on the move, and something happens. And it seems bad at first, but God uses it for the good. 2013 was a year of extreme violence in the streets of Wilmington, North Carolina. And what ended up happening was we had massive gang shootings going on every night. And it got so bad, it got so bad that the chief of police of our town, Wilmington, called a special town hall meeting with the pastors of the city. Now, Wilmington's not a massive city, but it's not tiny either. It's about 250,000, 300,000 people. So the chief of police calls an emergency meeting with any pastor of the city that would come to town hall. So we go. I go, and like I said, I'm there. I don't know hardly anybody. We go down there, and um, I sit in a town hall meeting. The chief of police basically lays his heart on the table, his heart, and he goes, listen, my officers are terrified. This is right at the height, 2013, right, when uh, Trayvon Martin, uh, Michael Brown hands up, to, that whole rioting in Ferguson, all this is happening in the country. So there's a lot of unrest between black communities and the police department. So he's telling us, my officers are scared to death. He said, last night alone, we had 17 shootings, 17 shootings, which is huge for our little city. So he said, basically, bottom line, Archie police said, We recognize that we cannot make our community better without the church's help. And as your police chief of police, I'm saying we need you, the pastors. I mean, it was like a holy moment. So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm around the table. Everybody's just like don't know what to say. And the Lord downloads, man. He gives me a download. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, oh, my God, I know what to do, Jesus. He just showed me. And as I'm sitting there, I kept seeing this march, this prayer march. And I felt like the Lord was like, Michael, I want you to gather the people and call a citywide prayer march. And I'm like, all right, th- th- that's kind of been done before, you know, in years past. He said, no, 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 no. He said, there's a reason I led you to this history. He said, I'm going to give you a map. And I kid you not, I started looking and I found this map of where that mob marched and killed all those, all those people in our city. And I took out the map, and he said, I want you to organize a prayer march for this city and retrace the exact steps where that mob marched. And instead of hatred and violence, you call people to release forgiveness and call my name on that march. And I was like, okay, Lord, like I'm holding this. Again, I'm there for like six months. I don't know many people. So I start praying. God connects me with an African-American pastor. I found this pastor online, and he was he, he was online for going in a crack house and pulling somebody out to try to help him. I mean, he was just one of those guys. I thought, wow. So he had a number. I called him. I talked to him. He's like, uh, hey, man, I, I do this outreach every Saturday in the low-income housing. And I was like, can I come join you? He's like, absolutely. So I go, I go out there. It's just him and another guy. He's, he's prayer marching. And they, get this. This is what they're doing. He's going do you guys got low-income housing projects here in Birmingham? Do you got some, you know what I'm talking about, Section 8 housing? So we go in there, and I don't know what's going on. First time I've ever been, and what this brother does is he goes out there, and this guy, he's a beast of a man. He's like 6'7", six, 6'8", six, 20, 250-pound muscle. And he just starts going out, and he just starts praying, Father, I thank you right now. She kind up, Lord, we just call every devil and demon down. We plead your blood. And he prayer marches the whole neighborhood, every house, out loud, just without no fear. He carries his big cooker, and then when he's done praying and ministering, he feeds the community, the kids, and he prays for them. He does it every first Saturday of the month. So I loved it, and I got connected with him. And so I, uh, I, I had lunch with him a little We We met. We talked. God bonded our hearts. He bonded our hearts within two, three weeks. About three weeks later, I, I, I gave him this vision that he gave me at the police meeting. And I said, Jameson. Can, can we do this, instead of doing a prayer march here in the thing one Saturday, what if we did a citywide prayer march to bring the city together like the chief was asking? He said, Mike, I love it. This is awesome. He said, yes, let's do it. Now, I didn't know anybody, but this guy knew everybody. Didn't know this, but he happened to be a chaplain on the police department. So he literally opens the door for all other pastors, mostly African American, in the city. So he brings me into their circles, he lets me share the vision, and because of him, they all rally around me, and him with this vision, and they're like, we want to do it. I'm like, what? And so next thing I know, I'm in another meeting, and this guy, uh, another pastor comes in, he goes, well, I have an elder at my church, he's one of the high-ranking officers on the police department, he said he'll block every city block for you to do that march, 34 blocks, it's a two-mile march, downtown Wilmington on a Saturday. I was like, this is the Lord, man. And we got stirred. So to go on to the next picture. So what ended up happening, this was, uh, this was actually, this real photo, the guy I'm talking about, Jameson, you can tell me he's the big man in the middle. Huh, he's a big boy, ain't he? There's a chief, our chief of police that called the meeting. We're in the back back there. And um, get this, our chief's name, you know, God's got a sense of humor. Guess what his last name was? Evangelist. Chief Evangelist. So this was the meeting. We called the meeting. Go to the next one. Boom, and there it is. Over 1,500 people ended up showing up. Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodists. I mean, they came out of the woodwork. Almost, almost 2,000 people. We locked arms. I mean, the Catholic guys leading us, man, from the, the Catholic church. They got in it. And, 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 and we're, we're in this procession and and we're marching down the same path where those those uh, folks laid out all of those people all those years ago but instead of Instead of hatred and violence, we began to plead of blood, that it was better than the blood of Abel's spill. And we pleaded the blood of Jesus. And when I mean every foot, every journey we took, tears were falling. People were coming undone. You could feel things moving in the city. You could feel things moving in the atmosphere. Walls were breaking. Even amongst the people, they were crying against, hugging on one another. I mean, this was so unusual given the history of that city. This just didn't happen. Here's the next one. And then the Lord started moving. Now this was on the First Baptist Church downtown Wilmington, where they actually planned that whole whole coop of murder. The leaders planned it in the basement of the First Baptist Church, and we stood on that same site with the chief of the Tuscarora, chief Indians, Native Americans, Spanish. That—that is the actual Baptist pastor, the young guy in the red, and we just begin to release forgiveness, asking God, standing, pleading the blood. And guys, I mean, walls were breaking. Here's a really cool thing. You see the, the Native American guy here to the right with the black ball cap. Some of the older, older folks here may know there was a show called Gunsmoke. You ever heard of Gunsmoke? Remember on Gunsmoke there was a guy named Tonto. That's Tonto's son. That's Tonto's son. He's an actual Baptist Native American evangelist. But he came in. He joined in with it. You know who marched with us? No lie. Snoop Dogg's mom. You know rapper Snoop Dogg? Someone knew her, she heard about it, she flew in. She's like, I want to march with you. We prayed for Snoop Dogg on the march. She said, I didn't raise him like that, but Lord, one day he's gonna come home. There's a celebrity revival going on, by the way, right now. Hit the next one. So that that march, now that march literally began to break walls down in our city. So again, what are you saying, Mike? Part of redigging the wells is you gotta locate the well first. And part of what that looked like for us was understanding the layout of our city, understanding the history, the demographic, because it's not just history. What we learned is that the history of our city became a weapon of unity. Everybody began to gather around the vision of that history. That's why it's so important. So when you can find out of how God moved in Kimberly and these places in the past or these regions, you begin to put that on the table. And then all of a sudden, other churches and leaders and, and movements, even in the secular, they begin to gather around that history. They say, wow, that's what makes us different. That's what makes us unique. And so history became a literally rally point for us to mobilize the whole city. So that was awesome. So that was part of just kind of how we tapped into actually locating our well. Come on. So two years later, now, what that march did is it broke down that initial wall. And so what happened was those black pastors you just saw were not as skeptical of us white pastors anymore. They understood that our hearts were in the game. So then we began to build relationship out of that. We began to form relationship. So after the march was over, we just didn't like. Didn't talk to each other anymore. We kept relationship. How do we do that? Two ways. Number one, we devised a uh, just a simple conference call. Every Thursday, we had a conference call line, about 20 pastors. And what we would do, 6 a.m. every Thursday morning, and we would go through and we'd rotate a devotional. So one pastor would have it this Thursday. He'd do a 15-minute devotional. We would do prayer requests, what's going on in the churches, what's going on in the community. We were on and off in 30, 45 minutes. And it would rotate like that. They still do it now. And I, I was able to join in it for five years. That kept us, that kept us connected even with the busyness and our, our not being available. That kept us connected. The second thing that that kept us connected that was so good was the prayer marches. Once we did that big prayer march, we begin to throw in with Jameson there and we begin to go into the low public housing districts, and every first Saturday of the month for five years, we prayer marched those streets. Then, when kids started hearing about it, we took the prophetic kids in there. Now, and you start getting prophetic kids hearing the Lord and releasing words of knowledge and prophecy, and you turn them loose into the ghettos and the projects, oh my God, it is a recipe of revival. I was telling Paul this this afternoon. Um, we, we've, we, you know, we've done outreach in so many places, treasure hunts, which I love. We've done it so many times, Starbucks, the mall, which is great. It's good. But sometimes it's so hard because people are not that receptive. They're too busy. You know, it's like, you don't need the Lord. You go in the ghetto and you go in these poor places. It's like Jesus is hiding in those places. And they're so receptive. And when you begin to share the gospel, you just begin to love and minister to them. Heaven breaks loose. And so as we were in these communities and these projects, Lord started moving big time y'all. I mean, I mean big time. It literally this was no joke. We I mean, we were in it, man. Our hearts were in it cuz we believed in it. I mean, we took our kids, all of our kids were out there. I mean, there would, there would be bullet holes in the house the night before fresh, not even 5 hours. We were there the next morning pleading the blood, praying for grandma, praying for the kids, you know, just saying not anymore, Jesus. Chief of Police actually came Three, four months after the march, the chief police had another meeting and said, guess what? Crime rate has dropped to an all-time low in Wilmington. And he said, it's not because we beefed up the police force. It's because the church got together and prayed. My God. See, there's only so much we can do by ourselves. But when we join into a corporate vision and a corporate community, it's so powerful it releases a sound. It releases something that shakes the whole atmosphere. So it's a, it's a powerful weapon. And, and again, I'm going to get off of this, but it's really big in my heart, and I believe God's heart. You cannot forget the least of these. We cannot forget the poor and the broken. It is so on God's heart. It is so on God's heart. So about two years later, this happens. And what begins to happen is we begin to get stirred again for a big citywide movement. So God... Begins to put in a heart about setting a tent up in, in Wilmington. So we, we get this vision and get a tent to set it up, but not just the tent revival, not just we're going to bring in speakers and, and worship. This was a whole new bear. And the vision was to get God's presence in the city, and so people can actually encounter God Himself through ongoing worship, prayer times, and ministry times. So we actually launched this thing for 10 straight days. Twenty-four-seven, around the clock, and we built day and night prayer, God's presence in that tent for twenty-four hours, seven days a week for the or seven day for those ten straight days. We had like over eighty-four worship teams throwing it. We had people from all over the country come and be a part of it. And I, what I mean to tell you, I mean if you could think about that. Day after day, worship going on to Jesus. Whether the tent was full or whether there was one or two people in, in three and four in the morning, there was always live worship, always live prayer going to the Lord. And guess what began to happen? The Holy Spirit broke in. No, I mean, I'm telling you, all like something out of the book of Acts, he broke in. Now, the pastors that we connected with in the march got behind it. Why? Because we're breaking down these walls. Now we're starting to form relationships and friendships. So now when we get this another vision, instead of it's a competition or it's my thing, I'm not going to go to it because it's your thing. We're going to throw in because it's our thing. This is our thing. And we're going to see our city come alive. So then they threw into it. And all of a sudden, people were coming out of the woodwork, y'all. And God began to move. This was just one of the scenes in there that night. Go ahead and hit the next slide. There were several things that I learned about this and how you literally can open a gate for the king of kings to come into a city or region. Psalm 24, we prayed it this morning, says, lift up your head, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ye ancient doors. Now, in the Bible, it was customary. It was customary in biblical times that when a visiting king would come into a city, that there was a huge procession. And the way they would open the city gate to welcome a visiting king into a city is that there had to be a merger between the spiritual government leaders and the civil government leaders. So both the civil government and the spiritual government came together and they would open the gate and the king would come in to a city. So as we started launching this thing out, we called it Ignite Wilmington, 10 days, 24-7, come and encounter the presence of God at Legion Stadium. Guess what happened? We put out a little promo video. I get a phone call, true story, no lie, on my cell phone. Walmart. I'm in Walmart. I'm in the third aisle of Walmart. And my phone rings. I don't recognize the number. I usually don't answer it. So I pick up the phone. And this is what happens on the other end. Hello, is this Mr. Thornton? I said, yes, this is him. He said, hey, this is Mayor Sappho of Wilmington, North Carolina. The mayor of the city of Wilmington called my phone. Don't know how he got it, but he tracked it down. He said, hey, I heard about this event going on called Ignite Wilmington. I think it looks remarkable. Is there any way I can be a part of it and help? Oh man. Come on. I mean, you know that's when the Lord is moving on something, when the mayor calls your phone and is like, hey, I want to be a part of this gathering. You know you got to be doing something right. So it took me off guard, and I was like, oh, my God, yeah, maybe you could come. How about opening prayer? He said, oh, I'd love to do that. I'm like, oh, man, that would be great. And so I was so excited, and I was like, well, it was a good call. He said, this is my cell number. Just call me back if you need me. I was like, all right. So he got off the phone, and then about the next morning, I'm really thinking about it. I'm like, man, I'd like for him to play a little bit larger role. So I'm like asking the Lord, Lord, what can I ask the mayor of our city to do? I've asked him to open in prayer. He said, yeah, I want you to ask him to do something else. I said, what is it, Lord? He said, I want you to ask him to lead the city in communion at the communion table. I said, are you serious? He's like, yeah, ask him. So I called him back the next day. I'm like, hey, Mayor, this is uh, Mr. Thornton who you just called yesterday. He's like, yeah, yeah, how can I help? I said, there's one more thing I'd like you to do, sir, if you could. I said, how do you, I don't even know if he's a believer. I said, how do you feel about leading the city in this tent meeting and giving us communion. He went, wow, that's a big question. He said, that's a big, big thing. I said, what, do, do you believe in the Lord? What faith are you? He goes, I'm from the Orthodox Church. So I'm thinking, whoa, you know, that's like communion in the Orthodox Church is a big deal. That's a big deal. So he goes, all right, I'll be willing to do it if you could assist me. I was like, absolutely. So the mayor of our city, Comes and rolls in the first day of this tent gathering with not just him, but the chief of police who remembered us from the march, Uh, the, 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 the county officials, district superior judges, half of the city council, and they roll in there. And the mayor, that's him right there in that right picture, leads us, there's the communion table, in communion. I mean, come on leads the city in communion as we open up 10 days of building day-night prayer in this city. I mean, it was like the Holy Spirit was so loosed in that place. And then we had pastors and the civil government leaders, as you can see, praying arm-in-arm. And what we started learning is that, man, when you unite pastors and leaders with the civil government leaders, it literally opens doors for God to move in a city and a region. And a lot of times, a lot of leaders in a place don't see God move in his fullness because they leave out the governmental leaders. The governmental leaders are huge, huge in connecting and opening up the gate for the king to come in. I mean, I mean, it was massive for us, massive. Can you hit that next one? So how about this? The next day, um, one of the days, Saturday in the tent, we, we were having a prayer morning. So uh, we were doing a set from like 8 to 10 a.m. on a Saturday. By this time, we were like three or four days into the tent. presence of God is moving. People are getting saved and baptized. It's, it's like wild. Well, all of a sudden, uh, this Saturday morning, we got, we got these governmental leaders to come and pray over the city. This guy right here sitting down is the congressman of our district, David Rouser. He's a Republican candidate. He's an actual congressman. So he's going to come and lead the prayer. Guess what? Now, we couldn't forecast this. Guess what happens? We pull up to the tent at 8 o'clock that morning. I meet him and several other Congress leaders out in the parking lot. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking, I'm listening to them, but my eyes in the tent because worship's going on. Remember, they're going nonstop. These young kids, I mean, fire of God's falling. But at the altar, we're about 10 homeless people. See, we're in a big homeless population. And when you're open 24 7 and the presence of God is moving, People are getting touched. They ain't got nowhere to go. So they were sleeping and laying out every day at the altar, ministered to. And I had a dilemma. I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do, Shoe them out of the way so the congressman can pray? What do you do? So I was like, Lord, help me. What do I do? He said, just leave them. So I I, I walked them in. The congressman looked at them. And it was like he didn't know what to do. So we, like, gave him the microphone. And we're like, "Can, can you go ahead and pray? And he can't even pray. He begins to weep. Because the only thing you could feel in that whole atmosphere was humility. Listen, you know, Jesus rides on a a white horse in Revelation. But he also still rides a donkey. He's a humble king. And that environment that morning was so humble. It was so meek. And it brought that congressman to his knees. He began to weep over our state. And his prayer was, God send the Holy Spirit back into North Carolina again. And he did it in tears. We sat there. Now the Lord starts throwing to me. He goes, Michael, I want you to wash his feet. I'm like, oh, my God. What you, what you, how do I do that? Do I just ask him. This is a congressman. He's probably going to say no. I mean, this could be like a public thing. He's like, wash his feet. So we didn't give him an opportunity. So we got some foot pans and water. And as soon as they were done praying, we just ushered them right over to the chair. And we just started washing their feet. S- leader after leader. We sat down. The pastors, all the pastors and leaders just began to wash the government's leader's feet. And the whole government, all, every one of them were weeping and crying all the way down. A lady of our church was his secretary. She told us a week later, I said, how's he doing? How do you do after all that? She goes, he sat in his car for 45 minutes, unable to speak a word, trying to process what just happened to him. So you start impacting leaders like that, then governments start to shift, policies start to be rewritten, and the gospel and the kingdom starts having a greater impact in our society and our culture. That's why this is so important. So it was like, Lord, so here's, okay, keep going to the next one. Here's something, here's something else that happened. Now, because we were led to, to see the gates open wide, guess what? Heaven touches Wilmington. And people were coming out of the woodwork, homeless, drug addicts, drug dealers. I mean, they were coming, nobody praying for them, crying, weeping, coming into the tent. How can I get saved? I want to change my life. I don't want to live like this anymore. We had a a guy donate this baptismal tank. We had to call the fire department to fill it up. When the fire department came to fill it up because they had no water out there, they came, they're like, we'll come fill it up. They filled it up, and as soon as they put the water in right there, this dude, his name is Rob, Rob came walking off the street, not even 10 minutes after it got filled, and said, I want to give my life to Jesus. I've never been baptized in all my life. And Rob got baptized, and he got saved right there. Gave his heart to Jesus. Now, we were feeding people for free. Every night we had food, we were just feeding the whole tent that was coming. That was a whole other miracle. Let me tell you how God works. Rob was so touched, so changed. He leaves that day, and Rob comes up the next day. This guy's homeless. He has nothing. He has nothing. I mean, he has nothing. He lives in the woods. And he comes up the next day, and he's carrying a, 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 a rolls, bread rolls, hamburger rolls, and hot dog rolls in his arm. And he goes, I want to give an offering to the tent because Jesus touched my life. And I want to hit this point here. That's what redigging the wells at Revival is all about. This isn't like hocus pocus, pray, strike the ground, something happens. Matt, No, this is about lives being transformed and changed. It's about God breaking into the atmosphere, changing a city, shifting culture, and seeing people come out of the bondage and the hurt and the woundedness and connect with a real living Savior. Come on, to see Jesus lifted up and glorified. I mean, that's what this whole thing is about. I was like, oh, undone. And this thing flowed, I mean, day after day. We had a little girl. She had a cast on her arm, broke her arm, clean break. I mean, the bone was completely severed right there a week before the tent went up. She was dancing in the worship one night, just dancing. No one prayed for her. She had an appointment the next day. The doctor said, what in the name of God has happened? Her bone fused back together. They cut the cast off right there. She was supposed to be in it for eight weeks. She was in it for three days. Completely healed. No one prayed for her. The presence and the atmosphere healed her like that. So good. Hit the next one. And so what what started happening through that tent meeting, there was a lot of forgiveness. There was a lot of healing. There was a lot of the churches coming together. And what was happening, guys, is the well was being cleaned out now see, first we begin to find it, locate it. Now we started being cleaned out as the whole city became the ca- government, leaders, pastors. And then we hit this place where it became easy. Remember, in the beginning it was hard, right? And the pastors, they didn't talk to each other. But now we're starting to move in this place where it's getting easier. Now I can get on the phone and just call, hey, man, I got a need. Bro, I'm right there. Boom. Because now we're building relational equity. We're building relationships and friendships that are literally spanning across the city. Do you remember that story? I'm going to preach here in a minute. Do you remember that story in the Bible when Jesus calls his disciples? Come on. He's in, he's in the disciple. He goes, hey, Peter, why don't you cast the net all the way out there? Do you remember that story? Peter's like, Lord, Master, we've fished all night, man. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted, Lord. We've not caught a thing. Peter said, no, take me to the deep. Remember that? Take me to the deep waters. Throw out your net. And what happened is they pulled in the catch. And it was so great that the nets were beginning to break that they had to call another boat to help them. What are you saying? That's what relational equity looks like in building relationships in a city, in a region. The relationship is the net. Our little net is not enough to hold the harvest that God wants to send. It's going to take building relationships and forming relational equity with different people that are different than us, that look different, that vote different, that, look, that have different backgrounds, putting all of our stuff aside, connecting with them to build this massive regional net so we can pull the harvest all the way in, right, the deep waters. And that's what we begin to see happen. So a couple years go by, we're still tilling the soil, still th- things are moving, and then this happens. Old Abner Suarez, we, me and Abner, we get to talking and, and uh, begin to pray. Abner goes, man, I just feel that we're supposed to do something in Wilmington. And we started talking. At the same time, I had, I had came in contact with two guys. I don't know if you ever heard of these two guys, but they're awesome. Will Ford and Matt Lockett. You guys ever heard of Will Ford and Matt Lockett? You guys have anybody have not heard of them? It's okay if you've not. You raise your hand. Yeah. Let me just give a little why this is important. Will Ford is a black man. Matt Lockett is a white guy. These guys have been friends for years, ministered together through Dutch Sheets, through the prayer movement. Matt Lockett leads the what's called the Justice House of Prayer in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you've ever seen these. Uh, pro, we call them pro-lifers, with the red tape, with life around it, where they, where they do a silent protest in front of the Supreme Court. Matt Lockett helped start all that with Lou Engle and helped lead that. Will Ford was also a part of that in the beginning. But Will also had a separate ministry where he would share his family story. Because in his family, he had a kettle pot big as his table. And this kettle pot, this kettle pot was handed down to his family, six generations. Slaves. And he said the story would go that it was, it was what they would have to do is his slave forefathers would have to hide under the kettle pot to pray at night because, because if the masters heard them praying, they would come and kill them because a Christian slave was no good. So in fear, they would have to hide under this pot to muffle their voices and pray together as a family. And that pot was passed down six generations to Will. and Will's ministries, he shares this, right? Well, Will and Matt, I won't go too deep into that, but Will and Matt are running together. They're doing the prayer movement revival thing together. About after six, seven years, Matt Lockett's brother ends up doing his family genealogy. We talked about that last night. Turns out that it is Matt's family that owned Will's family on the same slave plantation in Louisiana. Holy cow. God forged them together. And together, they share this message of what real racial reconciliation looks like in America right now. It's, it's, they're going all around. And it was so powerful because they had to work through a lot of issues. And I thought, oh, my goodness, their whole vision is to fulfill Martin Luther King's dream, right? Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that one day, listen to this, the son of slaves will sit at the table of the son of former slave owners at the table of brotherhood. So Matt is the son of a former slave owner, and Will is the son of a former slave. And they share the kettle together at the table of fellowship and brotherly love to call regions into racial healing. Oh, what a powerful thing. So Abner and I, we got disturbed, and we we felt like the Lord wants to do this in Wilmington, North Carolina. So I connected with Will and Matt, and they said, we'd love to come. So Abner came and we did this gathering in Wilmington a couple years later. And this was, this was it right here. It was called Healing the Land 2018. And it was so powerful. It was so powerful. Because as we began to do it, it was taking on a whole other form. Now remember, I want to go through the stages again. Remember, when we first started in 2012, man, you couldn't talk to another pastor. It was so divided. But after the march, walls were broken. In the tent, we became more united. And then the pastor calls, the, the leaders, the, the, the friendships, the bonds, all of a sudden, all those walls came down. Now we move beyond this place of I'm just going to, you know, like a lot of times in racial reconciliation circles, and I'm not trying to bash this, but it's just how it is, we get stuck on the part of, you know, as an ancestor, I stand in the gap and forgive you for, you know, that's good. But it's got to go deeper than that. It's got to go deeper than that. And we hit that. And what we wanted to go deep into is we wanted to sit down with black leaders and white leaders at the same table in this gathering and ask black leaders, what is it like? Racial profiling, is it real? I mean, have you been profiled? What is it like? To the white pastor, what is it like? What is it like? Did, did, have you ever grown up with, with black folks or, you know, all this kind of deep Deep rooted questions. How was how your upbringing? What does the black church think of the white church? Vice versa. How can we come together? Have that dialogue where it's not like heated, you know, and it doesn't get out of control. And that's what happened at this gathering. And so, what began to happen is the Holy Spirit showed up through Willow Matt's story and through uh, we have panels and leaders. They opened up and they shared they hear the heart. This scene happened one night. This, this guy is an African-American pastor who's also on the city council of Wilmington. And he feeds communion to another white pastor. They, they feed one another communion. When they did that in this moment, it was like electricity went through the whole place. And it was just this beautiful picture of what God was doing of not just like, you know, I love you, but it was a deep, genuine love. I mean, guys, shouldn't this be modeled in every city in the South and in America, especially when racial violence and heat is 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 heating up all around? Hit hit the next one. So I, I feel like this is one of the best pictures to just to capitalize on it. I mean, look at that. Just look at it. The the night begin to explode through this massive foot washing service where the whole church began to wash each other's feet and especially every African-American and white. And it was this picture of true brotherly love, guys. True brotherly love. When I think of Azusa Street Mission, that's what I think of. When I think of the upper room in Acts, that's what I think of. I think of real genuine love being formed and all those dividing walls just begin to come down. We had Latinos in there. I mean, it was just, it was moving. God was moving so strong. Can you hear the next one? Again, that was one of our pastors. This is Pastor Campbell leading, he's the largest growing African-American church in Wilmington. And he was just sharing his heart. Next from him, there's a there's a white pastor on the side. He was a young white pastor. He was sharing. He's from South Carolina. Grew up with a, with just this strong Confederate background, racial background. Never went to school with a black person in his whole life. And just, just sharing all those experiences. And then how to work together. He actually lost 200 members at his church because they begin to go after uh, the, the ghettos and ministering to people, bringing those people in the church. 200 people left said, we're not in this, we're, we're out of here, because we're not going to have those kind of people in our church. This is in 2017 and 2018. And so being able to walk through and talk through all those things, it just brought just another level of healing and, and genuineness into the region. Go ahead to the next one. And so what, what began to happen, guys, is these living waters begin to flow, right? So I, I just kind of want to just kind of shift here right now and just kind of wrap this up here. About practical steps of digging out wells. So there's just four things I want to go over of what we just talked about, right? The first thing is cleaning out the well, that's utilizing the history, utilizing what you have to gather and mobilize people around, leaders around, to, to, to literally to do what God is calling you to do. Now, there's two passages I want you to see this that, that actually happens with Jesus. Second Chronicles 5. In uh, 2 Chronicles 5 and 12, if you can go there for a second, I I really want to show you this. First of all, though, go to the Acts one. I think it's Acts, right? Go to Acts chapter 1 first. In Acts chapter 1, right, Jesus is getting ready to lead the disciples. You remember that part? And you know what happens in chapter 2, right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. But in Acts chapter 1, we want to skip chapter 1 and go to chapter 2. But in order for chapter 2 and Acts to unfold in our lifetime, I believe we have to go through chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, especially in verse 4, listen to this. I want to share a secret here with you. It said, on one occasion, while he, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. For you had heard me speak about... For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I want you to highlight this, though. He says, do not leave Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered why the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem and not in any other place in Israel? Ever wondered that? Like, he could have poured it out in Capernaum or Nazareth. Better yet, Jesus could have took those disciples and went, fire, and baptized them right there. He was resurrected, right? Why the process? Why why is he saying, don't leave Jerusalem? He already gave them the commission. Remember that? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, preach the gospel, heal the sick. And, And I would remind us that there were 500 disciples here. 1 Corinthians 15.5 says there were 500 disciples in this moment, but 380 fell away. They didn't make it to the upper room. Only 120 of them made it to the upper room. What happened to the other 380? Why didn't they make it? This is what I believe. I believe they didn't see the value in going into a meeting and praying until God would break out. They're saying, hey, we've already got our commission. We've already got our ministry. We've already got our job and our assignment. Why aren't we doing it? But Jesus said, no, 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 there's protocol here. You have to go to Jerusalem, and you have to gather, and you have to pray. Now, do you know that from the time Jesus said this to the time the Holy Spirit poured out is how many days? It's 10 days. But guess what the Bible does not say? It does not say anywhere in there that Jesus said, oh, by the way, go in Jerusalem, and in 10 days. He said, until, until. Until. And that word until is a measuring rod into our hearts right now. Because you know what it does? It measures how serious you really are about God. Are you willing to wait until? So if it took one day or if it took five years, the disciples had to decide right here, are we willing to wait until, until the Holy Spirit is birthed, until we get that promise? That's where a lot of us are at right now. But again, I want to draw us to why did Jesus say Jerusalem? He wasn't just like gather there. The answer, real quick, is in Second Chronicles five. Now check this out. You got to talk, you got to love the Bible. In Second Chronicles chapter five, you got to go back in history. King Solomon right has built the temple. And when he builds the temple, he brings in the ark. And as they're bringing in the ark, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, I want to read verse 12. There's this massive procession. The whole nation is gathered in Jerusalem, the same spot where the upper room is in Acts. And then look at verse 12. And all the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jadothan, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, Dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals and harps and lyres. Check this out. They were accompanied by how many? Come on, a hundred and twenty priests who were sounding trumpets, singers joined them. Listen to this, in unison and in one voice. And Acts it says, All 120 were gathered in one accord. They were gathered in one accord, 120, all in unison, accompanied by simples, instruments, and they raised their voices and they sang, he's good, his love is endures forever. And look what happens. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud that the priests could not even perform their ministry. And the glory breaks in. Fire comes from heaven. Remember that? The glory breaks in. The ministers cannot even enter the temple because the whole atmosphere is invaded by heaven because 120 Levite priests were organized by the king for God to break in. So it's no accident that Jesus is saying you have to go to Jerusalem where Solomon once gathered 120 Levites and stand in the same spot and pray and seek the Father, honor the past, and believe for the present and then you will birth something called the church whoo my god and what Jesus is doing is he's using his own history and what their forefathers to mobilize the disciples on to tap into the well in Jerusalem my God, that Solomon pioneered right there because it was on that same spot something else happened I'm getting excited listen you consider me your cousin from Carolina Come on, I'm I'm brother Mike, cousin Wild from Carolina. Listen, on that same spot where Solomon offered that prayer and the fire of heaven came, do you know what happened even before Solomon? Abraham had a son named Isaac and he put him on the altar as a test to give to the Lord in Genesis 22. And he intervened and God said, I'm going to. Bless you, Abraham. I'm going to pour out my favor over your life. It's the exact same place where Abraham gave Isaac, where Solomon gave his heart, and where Jesus sends the fire of God, the Holy Spirit, and the 120 disciples. Maybe God likes to revisit the same place over and over again. And so I just want to just thrust that in your spirits that that when you see that full picture of Scripture and how God works generationally, we can tap into that. The disciples tapped into what Solomon laid. This is how God lays DNA. This is how God lays DNA through regions and through generations. And then when we tap into what was before, it thrusts us and it shapes the future so we can go forward. Getting fired up. Second thing. Acquire divine intelligence. The second thing we learned about this redigging of the wells is you have to acquire divine intelligence. What do I mean by that? Acts 16, verse 6 through 10, that is the passage about Paul, the apostle, and he's on his second missionary journey. But what I mean by acquire divine intelligence is that good, sometimes good ministry ideas is not enough. There's a lot of good ideas out there. There's a lot of good ministries out there. But we need to move beyond that. We have to get the word of the Lord. We have to get what God is doing and saying and breathing. All those gatherings that I just showed you, they weren't just like, this is a good idea. Let's just, no. This thing came through prayer, confirmation, corporate uh, leadership, and the word of God confirming it. And every time we got the word of the Lord, then we struck the city and God moved mightily. So you have to get the word of the Lord, and it's always strategic. Now, you guys know this. I don't need to teach this, but you know they come in dreams, visions, the Bible, many ways that you can get divine inspiration. But the point is you have to get the word of the Lord to literally clean out a well. Because, listen, you're talking about we went up against powers and principalities, guys, that had been locked up in racial bigotry and hatred and all this stuff in the, in the community, and you got to have the word of the Lord to overthrow those things, or you're going to get beat up. Remember the seven sons of Sceva and Acts? They thought they were going to cast out devils and demons by using Jesus' name, and they're like, you know, trying to cast out a devil, and that devil beats them up, and they run out of the house naked. Right? Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? Because they didn't have the word of the Lord. You have to have the word of the Lord. Divine intelligence. I want to illustrate that one more. Go, go with me. To the next slide. And then I want to read that, Acts 16. In Acts 16, and in verse 6, and as I read I want you to look at that map because I, I want to hit this. This is something that we ran into. I, I always found this passage was interesting. It said, and then Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phygeria and Galatia. Now, you see on that map right there, you see Galatia. So here's Paul. He starts from Jerusalem. He goes up to the church at Antioch, and then he goes, starts going through Tarsus and that way. And he gets up there to Icom and, and Galatia on this journey. And what Paul's wanting to do is he's wanting to go to Asia. He's wanting to go to a town in Asia right there called Ephesus. You see Ephesus? He's really wanting to go there on this journey. But look what happens in the Word. It says, "It says Paul, his companions, go through the region of Galatia, having been kept By the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bethina, And the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter. And instead, they passed through and went down the Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia. He was standing and saying, come over to Macedonia. Help us. Paul at once seen the vision, got up and left from Macedonia why are, what are you what are you talking about, Mike? Why are you even sharing this? Because I want you to see this paul 's heart, his desire, good ministry idea, he wants to preach the gospel in Asia come on right i mean he 's part of the assignment he 's fulfilling what God told him to do he 's thinking it 'd be great to go into Asia, but that 's not the divine word of the Lord in that season. so it said Jesus stopped him from going to Asia, specifically Ephesus. And what does he have? A vision in which a man of Macedonia, now look, you see where Macedonia is, all the way up there. And so instead instead of going here, cutting into Ephesus, he had to go to Troas, sail, Philippi, work his way all the way there, and then come around Ephesus through the back door. I will remind us, that the most powerful revival in the book of Acts accord happened at Ephesus. That's where extraordinary miracles happened. Remember the handkerchiefs were healing people? Do you remember that? The extraordinary miracles. Paul wanted to go there first, but God said, no, 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 you got to wait. What I believe is the land itself wasn't yet ready to handle the message and the word that Paul was carrying. And Macedonia had to come first. And so when he went through Macedonia, he was obedient. God led him to Ephesus, and Ephesus exploded in the powerfulest revival ever recorded in the book of Acts. Paul would have missed it had he not got that vision and acquired divine intelligence. We are living in a moment, guys, in a generation where we have to be moved and fueled by the divine wisdom of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. We have to live on fresh bread and not stale bread. We have to maintain our connection with the Holy Spirit in a daily consistent manner so that our hearts are like menorahs, seven lampstands burning with revelation, burning with vision, burning with what God wants to do into what say. And then, I mean, then look what happens. If we just follow him, right, and don't get discouraged, boom, it'll explode. Acquire divine intelligence. Hit that next one. I'm going to say one last thing about Paul's journey I love about this. As you even look at that map, you know, it almost looks like he laid it out, right? Man, he didn't lay it. This wasn't like strategic planning. The Lord was like, just go over here. And Paul would go and he'd, oh, he'd meet a woman, by the way, by praying at the gate. And and then something would happen. and Something would open up. Point is, I think Paul did more on accident than he did on purpose. What if we got so lost in following Jesus in our personal daily life that we actually do more on accident than we do on purpose for the kingdom? I think that's the whole Acts was written. All right, number three. Find the person of peace in the city. In Luke 10, I won't go into it, but in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the disciples two by two, and he takes them into the city, and he goes, he goes, he goes, you know, he gives them specific instructions, and he says, find the person of peace. He says, when you find that person of peace, let your blessing rest on them. They're going to help you in the journey. And what we've discovered is that this is a real principle, and this is applied in outreach in cities and in regions. We started doing this in some of the tent gatherings. You know what we started doing? We would launch teams out door-to-door, house-to-house on this principle. And all we did was we did a 10-minute teaching, and we taught people how to hear the Lord and how to find the person of peace in the neighborhood. That's how you do it. When you go out and you begin to go door-to-door, you would minister to people and just say, hey, we just want to tell you about Jesus or get a word of knowledge for him and start praying for him. But we would ask them, you know, some people would be like, look, I don't even want to talk to you. I don't need prayer. I'm cool. But then if you would come across a neighbor or a door, and that person would be like, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, my God, yes, I need prayer. Help me. That's the person of peace. Then you'd ask them, you see what we're trying to do here? Is there anywhere in the neighborhood? Who, who needs us the most? Where can we go and, and talk? And they'll open up every door. Oh, you need to go over there to Betty's house. Or you need to go over there to uh, Tyrone. Or you need to go over there to Lucy's. And they'll open up every door in that neighborhood. That's how the person of peace works. Same principle applies to pastors. God stations pastors of peace in cities and regions. Just like I met Pastor Jameson, he was one of the pastors of peace in Wilmington. He opened up the door for all those other things that happened in six months instead of taking five years to try to build and have coffee and do all that stuff. We found the pastor of peace like that, and it just opened up incredible, incredible things. I want to hit this point on this find the person of peace and especially in redigging wells. You see that up there where it says covenant and kingdom. We were talking about this today at lunch. I've learned, guys, that the most two important dynamics is you, ha- you have to have both. You have to build covenant. And you have to go after the kingdom. And our, this is my notice. This is my take. We're all part of a prophetic revival stream. I'm ordained at a global awakening. And in our stream, I've noticed in the prophetic, we're really good on going after the kingdom. We're really good in going after the miracles and seeing salvation and healings, which is a huge part of it. We have to do it. It's part of the commission. However, there is a however here. What I've also learned is that if you build everything around that and you do not build friendships and covenants outside of ministry partnerships, it won't last. It won't last. And what happens is a lot of people will get so addicted to ministry. They'll get so addicted into the kingdom, they don't even realize it. And what starts happening is, you're, you're, like even when you talk to people normal, like you're preaching to them because it's just part of who you are. Just You know, it's just so in, in, in you now that you've almost forgot how to connect with people on a regular level. You know, Jesus did both. He, he did the kingdom and he did poured into his disciples, he built covenant and friendship. Covenant is about building friendship, real covenant, real friendship with people. And it's okay that you don't connect on spiritual matters. I had to learn that. That was like almost everything had evolved around revival and awakening for us. Then I began to realize, wait a minute, some people that were in our life and that were helping us, it was awesome. But then Amber and I, we would start to notice that, oh, we don't have anything built with these folks outside of ministry. And so if we weren't in a ministry event, we couldn't even talk. We couldn't even have relationship. Because that, that's what it was all centered around. And then it became lopsided. And then next thing you know, the enemy creeps in. And the next thing you know, they're kind of, things are getting twisted and it's, it's all out. And next thing you know, they're not even in ministry anymore. They're not even following Jesus. Because that balance got out of whack. One of the most important things I can stress is we have to be intentional in building both covenant friendships and kingdom. And that's, we're still on that journey. That's something that we tapped into in Wilmington. That's what we're doing now in Greenville is we're learning more to build friendships, to be intentional with forming key relationships, not even, you know, like here's the deal. When I went to Jameson, it wasn't like Jameson, hey, let's do this. I said, Jameson, how can we serve you? With no agenda. No, I didn't have any agenda in my heart. It's like, bro, you're doing a great work. How can we come alongside and help you? And we did it for like years. Without asking anything, just to show our, our love and support. And that formed something, man. That bond, I can call that brother right now. Right now, in this night, I could call him and ask for anything and it'd be ours. You know, it's just that kind of a friendship that was formed. And I think we've missed that. We've missed that in our streams, we've missed that component. And I, I just feel like God is really wanting to, to build the church back, back in that way. So, finding the person peace. Last one here sustainability. You gotta keep the well flowing you got to keep the will flowing. Last part I'll share about this comes from 1 Corinthians 9. It's one my, my favorite passages where Apostle Paul is defending his apostleship. And as he's defending his apostleship, he's basically saying, do you remember that passage? He go, he's going, to the weak, I'll become like a weak to the weak to win the weak. And to the Jew, I'll become like a Jew to win the Jews. I'll become all things to all men that I may win some to Christ, Right? And I I thought about that, and in that statement, he goes, you know, I am a free man. That's how he opens that up. He goes, I am a free man, but I will make myself, and he goes down the list. And I thought, Lord, what is he really saying? What does that really mean? I remember, Paul is preaching to a Gentile audience. So there's a lot of racial hostility, cultural divide, and basically what I believe God showed me was this. Paul was saying, listen, I am settled in my convictions, right? I know what I believe. I'm a free man. I know what I believe. I think everyone in this room, we have, all have a responsibility to steward our own personal convictions. I believe that. Through Scripture, through our own walk with God, we have a responsibility to stand where we stand on biblically on issues like same-sex marriage, abortion, immigration, or whatever. Whatever issues is dividing our nation right now, we as believers have a responsibility to steward steward our own personal convictions on that. Yet Paul is doing this as he's doing that, but here's the but. But Paul doesn't even allow those personal convictions to segregate his own love towards somebody that's different than him. And what I'm speaking here is we have to grow up in the bride of Christ. For too long I've seen so much Immaturity. And we have to begin to move into this place where we won't even allow our own personal convictions to segregate and divide and to keep people far away from us. We have to be willing to go and connect with people that are different from us so that we can bring them to the king's table. So that we can bring them into fellowship with Jesus. I got to share this last story on that note. I was, when we were in the middle of this Wilmington, you know, forming these relationships during the prayer march trying to heal the racial wound, I got invited to speak at the oldest black Baptist church in the city one year. They were doing a remembrance for 1898. I'm like, sure, sounds right in line. I'm like, yes, I'll do it. So I I don't know what I was stepping into. I go in there. This is all African-American Baptist church. And I get there, and this church is really politically bent, if you know what I mean. And they are politically bent to the far left. I'm not talking about left. I'm talking about just the far left and like way far left. And so I'm sitting there and I'm the only white speaker of four speakers. I'm the last one of four to go. They got us all sitting on the on the stage. And and I'm sitting there and now I'm starting to think, "Whoa, what am I what what is going on?" Cameras start coming in from the back. Some of the government from Raleighs is coming in that are really really pro, I mean, just everything you can imagine. I see them coming in, their spokesperson coming. It turned into a, a political rally really quick. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is not what I signed up for. Jesus, help me. Next thing I know, they have the Masonic Lodge coming and leading the worship, which I was blew my mind. I could not believe that. And I'm, by this time, I'm in the chair, and I'm like, ba 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 Jesus, you got to move. And God had given my heart, a me- he gave me a message about calling the African-Americans in our city to to forgiveness, to forgive white people of the baggage that they've dealt with them over the years and that if they did it, it would release re- revival. It would release a blessing over the whole city. I'm like, so I'm holding this in my heart. The speaker starts speaking. Well, it gets to the guy right before me. This guy wasn't a pastor. He was a, he was called for what it was. He was, a, he was a political activist. And when he got up, He, for 35 minutes, spewed nothing but pure hatred out of that pulpit. And basically, he just said, I don't know why, talking to African-Americans, he goes, I don't know why you have not torn down everything in this city. These people robbed everything from your grandparents, left them on the street, and murdered them. Why haven't you torn down this city? And just trying to provoke and stir that, that hostility. Now, my dad and my friend are sitting on the front row. He, this is one of those big Baptist pulpits. He stands up. This is a true story. I'm not exaggerating. He stands down and look. He goes, it's because of people like you took everything away. Now I'm really like, like and now i got to give this message afterwards. I'm like, Lord, what do I do? So he sits down. You could hear a pin drop. Now the only white person gets up to speak. So I go to the, to the thing. And I just, I, guys, I go for it. I felt the boldness of the Lord, and I just lost myself in it, and I just gave it everything I had. And at the end of that message, the whole place stood up and cheered. I mean, the spirit of God broke in. The guy next to me had tears rolling down his eyes. The pastor that I was showing you on our video, he called me that night. He said, Mike, I'm going to tell you right now. This guy, he, said, he said, brother, he goes, his, this guy's name was uh, Kojo. He said, Kojo. Brought a message, and I'm by honest with you, I was scared for you. I didn't know how you were going to respond. He said, my God, I was praying for you, Mike. He said, but what you delivered and the way the Lord moved through you. He said, I just want to let you know I love you, man. I, I so honor and appreciate this tonight. And it formed our relationship. Formed our relationship. What's the point? If I would have let my own convictions get in the way, that would have never happened. We have to be willing have to be willing and mature enough to be able to connect with people that may be different than us so that we can build these relationships and these friendships and that we can keep the well flowing. Come on, come on, we're striking the ground, y'all. Striking the ground. I have, I feel like God, He still longs for Alabama, He wants to rip this thing wide open without going into it. I mean, you guys know there's. You got a similar history here through the Civil Rights Movement, Bull Connor down in Birmingham, all of that history piled into this region. I mean, there's there's so many things here, but I think just like Wilmington, because of those things, It's so marked by heaven. It's so on God's heart. And I believe it's going to be the tip of the spear. Lee, you were sharing that vision earlier about the fires burning all around. What if Alabama is going to lead us into the next revival? What if Alabama will lead the city, the nation, the region into a racial healing movement that would literally turn America back to God? I mean, I believe it comes by this, just by us doing what we're doing here, connecting with the Lord and each other, asking God to rip these wells open. Amen.